This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Greetings, and thank you for joining us. My name is Matthew Bregoire with the Stewart Collection of Sculpture. We're here today to talk about Ian Hamilton Finley's work, which was commissioned for the Stewart Collection in 1987. It's titled UNDA, U-N-D-A. With us is Nina Mamikunian. She's the curator for the Archive for New Poetry in Special Collections and Archives at the UCSD Library. She's also a librarian for literature and for theater and dance. She studied literature and writing at Brown University and Indiana University and library science at UCLA. Welcome, Nina. And we have also Mary Beebe, who is, of course, the director of the Stewart Collection. Mary, maybe you could start us off by telling us about Ian Finlay and your first encounters with him, how he was came to be commissioned, and the whole story of his, uh, his entrance into the Stewart Collection. Well, <laughs> Ian's name came up with the um, advisory board when we were talking about, about potential artists, because... He works with language in the landscape. He's an eccentric, quite wonderful artist. So they all said, you know, good luck in getting through to him because he's known to be much, very much a recluse. And he doesn't leave uh, his home in, in outside of Edinburgh, uh, <clears throat> Little Sparta, called one of the curators at the Tate and said, did he know how to get in touch with Ian? And he too said, "Um, yes, here's his phone number, but good luck. So anyway, I called Ian and he uh, said, give me a wee ring in the morning. (laughs) Um, I shouldn't do that, but um, uh, so I, I called him in the morning and he thought about it and he said, okay, I could come up there and come out to Little Sparta. So I flew to Edinburgh and um, went to Little Sparta, an extraordinary place. It's a farm that he and his then wife took over and then turned into kind of a, a landscape of works. Every detail was, like there was a watering can that was painted with a rose is a rose is a rose. Anyway, we had lunch and uh, wandered around together, and then I wandered around more on my own and uh, was blown away. So he said he would think about something for the Stewart collection. He does not leave his home, so Sue, his wife, came to the campus and looked around with his eyes chose a spot looking out over the ocean. You only see a bit of the ocean from this site at Third College. You know that the ocean's out there. Five locks using the word unda, which is of course Latin for wave, and he transcribes it onto these rocks with one rock carved with the wave sign that means to switch these two letters in editorial lingo. The wave sign rolls through each letter, changes each letter, and then when it rolls out, you have the correct spelling of unda. 
And as you're sitting there, you can sit on the stones and look out at the scene, which is a playing field in front of you, and then some um, trees and the horizon of the playing field, the horizon of the trees, and then the ocean. You don't see the waves, but you know they're there. UCSD has a collection of, of poetry, an important collection, and Ian is known as um, an artist as well as a poet, you know, as I said, putting language into the landscape. So it seemed especially appropriate that he make something for the campus because it would be a direct illustration or manifestation of his work. Nina, maybe you could uh, introduce us a little bit to the Archive for New Poetry and and also maybe lead into uh, what is concrete poetry because uh, Ian Finley is known as a concrete poet, although he's many things besides that. And uh, tell us a little bit about all that. <laughs> right. So the Archive for New Poetry is, uh, as Mary said, an important part of Special Collections and Archives at the UCSD Library. Special Collections and Archives has a number of different notable collections, um, probably most famously the Dr. Seuss collection. Uh, we also have um, the Hill Collection of Pacific Voyages, uh, the American Institute of Food and Wine, um, the Spanish South War, uh, sorry, the South Worth Spanish Civil War collection. Um, so we have rare books, we have manuscript material, we have the university records, uh, and we also have the Archive for New Poetry. So the Archive for New Poetry um, is roughly about uh, 80 or so manuscripts and audio collections, um, as, as well as about 35,000 books. Um, we've got about 700 or so uh, broadsides and other important poetry artifacts. The main focus is uh, experimental American poetics um, post-1945. So that includes, you know, poetry schools such as the New York School, uh, the Black Mountain College, the language poets, and uh, poetry of that nature. What's really exciting about the Archive for New Poetry um, and the poets that we collect is the extensive network that these poets had with each other um, and all of the correspondence between them and all of the uh, books and poems that they would exchange. So while we don't have the biggest collection of concrete poetry, we do have a sampling of kind of the important concrete poets that were emerging in the 1950s and 1960s. So Ian Hamilton Finlay was one of those poets. Uh, he started off his literary career writing short stories and what might be considered um, a little bit more traditional poetry. Uh, although I think one could argue that. Uh, and it was in the uh, 1950s and 60s that he really churned to concrete poetry. So to talk about concrete poetry, there are a couple of important figures that we have to kind of talk about first. Um, and these are all, all these people are kind of in conversation with each other. So to start, um, I'd like to talk about the Brazilian poets. And my Portuguese is not very good, so my apologies to any viewers who do speak Portuguese and just, you know, grimace at my pronunciation. <laughs> but the, uh, the Noi Gandres group in uh, Sao Paulo. So that consisted of Augusto de Campos, Oraldo de Campos, and Desio Pignatari. Um, and they formed this group that really focused on 
kind of taking poetry away from the line, taking it away from verse, and really focusing on the word and the letters as the basic unit of poetry. Um, and so they play around with typography and color and arrangement to create a poem, um, rather than using a line of verse. Uh, similarly, we have Ewan Gomringer, who was a Bolivian who lived in Switzerland. And in, I think it was about 1954, he talked about, um, instead of writing poems, he wanted to do constellations. And his manifesto is called From Line to Constellation. He felt that it was um, the simplest kind of configuration that he could do, that, that basic unit of the word. Um, and it's all about entering in this constellation of words to create meaning. Um, so it's about the sound of the words, it's about the visual form of the words, it's about the kind of the semantical charge that a word might have. And then we have Ian Hamilton Finlay, who started uh, in this vein similarly in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and what he wanted to do, and I absolutely love that he thought about it this way, was that he wanted to um, have a model of order with words and letters that was set in a space filled with doubt. And I think that's a really interesting way to kind of enter concrete poetry because a lot of people look at concrete poetry and they say, I don't get it, I don't know what this is about. And I think that's one of the points. Um, it's, it's a lot of doubt into, into a concrete poem because there are so many multiple ways to read it. And that's the point of it. It really disrupts this notion that we have to read from left to right or right to left. It's really prismatic. Um, the letters can be scattered across a page. They can go in a certain order going this way and a certain order going that way. And you can read them up and down and across. You can read them any which way. And there's, multitude, there's a multitude of readings that you can do. Um, he said that he wanted his poems to be uh, simple objects, um, no more complex than a potato, <laughs> which I think is just, again, just a really wonderful way <laughs> to think about um, what he's doing with these very kind of abstract concepts of language and understanding. And he must have been one of the first to, to actually sort of literally objectify his poems, <laughs> right? To put them in the landscape which seems like perfectly consistent with the idea of reading them right side up and upside down and forwards and backwards and everything else, because it puts you in the world of unlimited possible contexts. Mary, maybe you could talk a little more about uh, Little Sparta. Uh, it was such a magical place. I visited there twice. We should mention that it's still there, that people can still visit. And uh, it's just a kind of... Uh, magical wonderland of letters and stone and trees and gardens. And uh, maybe you could uh, describe it a little more, what it's like to walk through there. Well, you run into things like near a pond, there is a, a sign. It says, See Poussin, here Lorraine. So you get the visual and the sound and all of that brought into one piece. There's a nuclear sale, right? And a lot of his imagery and a lot of the objects that you sort of discover throughout the garden ha have references to war and, yes. and violence, right? Little Sparta is about war. And a lot of that classic war imagery or war writing does come into his work.
a lot of what he would do is to juxtapose two seemingly opposite words with each other and create meaning within those words. Um, so the fact that you have a lot of war imagery and symbolism um, juxtaposed against a natural environment, um, you can see that early on in his poetry as well. One of his phrases is um, wildflower, a mean term between revolution and virtue. So you've got the war, but the virtue and the, you know, and wildflower. He saw himself at war with the establishment in a way. And so he brings in a lot of references to war and boats and um, uh, and classical mythology and, um, you know, just in and around there. I don't know how many elements there are. There must be hundreds that you discover as you're wandering on paths, and then you can go out into meadows or fields. As you say, it's really magical. We took the Friends of the Stuart collection there, and everyone, it was this really perfect day with a little bit of wind rustling in the trees, so you would hear that and wander around, and um, it just couldn't have been a happier experience for everybody. We should say that that property is a... I guess I did say that it's a foundation uh, and it's going forward in, in perpetuity, right, Mary? It's a tr national trust now. So, um, yes, and it is open. You have to call. You can't just show up. You have to call and make a reservation, and um, uh, especially for groups. Uh, but But it's definitely open and it's amazing amazing place there's nothing else there's nothing around it really they're just all farms it's out in the lowlands and um uh quite beautiful it's almost a sort of uh, easter egg a treasure hunt uh as you go through there uh and uh nina maybe you could talk about what's your sense of well you came to ucsd long after the piece was commissioned and you discovered it uh you know, as a as a as an existing work, uh, can you talk about what that was like, and uh, and how does that how do you sort of enter into it? And generally, the the whole idea of words etched in stone sort of leads one to make associations with uh, with power, uh, but in some ways, this is the opposite. Um, maybe you could just talk about uh, that. Yeah. So my my kind of experience of Umba has changed over time. As I've gotten to know Ian Hamilton Finley's work a little bit better and kind of put it in the context of concrete poetry. When I first saw it, I, I considered it a sculpture more than anything else. Um, but kind of looking more into his work and looking at what this concrete poetry movement was really doing, I understand it more as a poem. Because I think what it does is it invites you into the word Umba and it makes you think about it. And it moves across, not a page, it moves across stones. Um, but I think that's similar to what poetry does. This was the uh, final expression of him kind of moving words off the page and into objects and into the landscape. And I think that poetry can do that. Um, and I think that's something that people kind of get away from with poetry. You know, they want poetry to be about something. They want to be told something. They want the poet to be centered in the poem to, you know, explain what they feel and what they're looking at and things of that nature. But what this does and how it relates to his concrete poetry work is that it decenters the I, it decenters the poet 
And it puts all of that meaning making onto the viewer, onto the reader, onto the listener. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to do. And it was very mm-hmm. important to Ian and to the Concrete Poets how something looked on a page. And then they can move that out. Ian moved it out and into the landscape. He was a curmudgeon. He was really, he was known as a difficult guy, which is why people said good luck in finding him and going to see him. But he, we became friends and he um, would send me uh, little writings and and cards and stuff. um, And we would speak on the telephone every Christmas or New Year's or something to just say, he was pretty frail. Um, even when I was there, he was old and uh, frail and curmudgeonly, and um, but but really delightful too. So, I guess we just happened to get along. Um, I have a Scottish background. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but um, I, when you look at the history of of all those poets, I think he stands out as moving further into the landscape than than most of them. He was definitely much more concerned um, with natural elements. And you can see that in his early work in the 50s and 60s. A lot of it is about the sea. It's about waves and it's about nature in a way that uh, the Noigandres group, uh, they were in Sao Paulo, which is, you know, a big city. And so a lot of that was about the city, uh, juxtaposed to, to Ian, who was, you know, in nature much more. And and also more, he was really interested in the classics. And I think that, that it sort of ties it all together in a way that I think is really interesting and meaningful. And people like to, you know, just sit on those rocks and, you know, and look out. And uh, it is a kind of playing field. So you can watch man at play or you can watch the spectacle of nature, the sunset, you can watch, you know, you can think about the waves and how nature is a, you know, a, a real force, <laughs> um, probably the most um, dominant force in the world. One of the things that struck me, uh, because it's it's easy to look at sort of concrete poetry and poetry in general and think, well, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to get in here. I don't, you know, it's too obscure. Uh, it's opaque. It's hermetic. Uh, and yet with Finley, and actually with a lot of poetry, I think, but with Finley in this piece especially, he gives you the tools right there. I mean, there's that, that waveform is a tool and you don't have to understand Latin. You know, you can understand what the dynamic of the work is just by looking at it and figuring it out. It, it gives you the tool to get into it. And then you can go from there and you can figure out what the, you know, first of all, the U is a, is a V shape, which is the classic you know, way of representing a, a U in, in Latin. And uh, and you can go from there and you can research it or you can just experience it sort of as it is. But the fact that it gives you the, the kind of mechanism for exploring and understanding and feeling and all that stuff is, uh, is important, I think. Um, Nina, I wanted to ask you a sort of general question about the kind of, you know, we... Uh, Certainly in my generation, think of poetry as existing in books, uh, but it doesn't necessarily exist in books anymore and hasn't for a while. And perhaps you could talk a bit about the kind of divide between books and new media and sort of how do poets uh, uh, share their work and convey their work uh, today as 
time changes and media changes? Well, first I would say that um, to begin with, poetry was not in books. Poetry was an oral form. So it kind of moved from, you know, being more vocalized into the, to the printed form, into books. Um, and you constantly see this uh, kind of play back and forth between the mediums throughout the history of poetry of, um, you know, and it kind of mirrors what technological innovations are happening at the time. Um, so once it became easier, uh, you know, through the centuries uh, to print and to make books, um, poetry definitely moved more into books. Um, but there's still a strong sense that poetry is an oral form. Um, and it started to become also a more visual form as, as time moved on as well, as people played with it on the page. So we still see a lot of that today, um, all of these forms coexisting together. And that's something that I think is really beautiful as well. And one of the things I love about um, the Archive for New Poetry is how much uh, what one might deem ephemera we have. So poetry not in books, but poetry on postcards and poetry in letters and calendars that were made with poetry and all of the visual poetry that we have. Um, we have a lot of audio recordings of poetry. So we see, you know, right through um, from the from the 1960s up until today, we still have a lot of audio poetry happening, um, which I think is really exciting. Of course, the printed word is not dead. <laughs> it will never die. <laughs> and as we move into more digital forms, um, poetry has been taking some interesting turns as well. So what we have um, are poems that work very well on the page, um, that also work very well on a screen. So we have kind of the substitution of the screen for the page. Um, but poetry as a printed form is still very, very important. And I'm seeing that a lot in kind of the networks that I'm in, the way that people share their poetry or share a poem that they love. I see a lot of posts on social media um, of people literally taking a picture of the page that they're reading to talk about how much they love a poem. Um, even if that poem exists on a website somewhere, they're not sending a link, they're not doing a screenshot, they're doing a picture of the book itself. Um, so I think that the printed form, I think, is still something that a lot of people definitely enjoy and sometimes prefer for poetry. And then at the same time, we have poets really taking advantage of new technology and uh, coming up with more um, ways to enhance their poetry through digital forms. Um, and this kind of mirrors a lot of what happened in Concrete Poetry. What Concrete Poetry did was that it played with uh, typography and it played with the space on the, on the page. Um, but again, that's a very static form. You know, once it's set in on the page, unless you're physically moving it, <laughs> you know, it's on the page. But now we have computers and there's a lot you can do with computers and there's a lot of interaction that you can do with poetry. Um, so digital poetics is, is a new form of poetics. Um, or one could argue it's also an older form of poetics because it's really playing with all of the elements that have always existed in poetry, but it's just putting it into the latest technology. And I think that's something really important to think about when you think about the history of poetry um, is what kind of technology was available and how were poets using it. So with concrete poetry in the 1950s and 60s, there were kind of three, ma three major technological innovations that became kind of widespread. Uh, we have the typewriter, we have the tape recorder, 
and we have the, the camera. And this totally changed the way that the average person could kind of interact with representation. And I think that's happening again today where computers are widespread. Um, websites are very widespread. And so a lot of people are digging into these forms and seeing what they can do with it. What new ways can they express themselves through the technology that we have currently available. And for someone who would want to explore all that, um, is there a way to do that through the archive or is there a way to do that? I mean, literally, you know, can you give us some some links or some places to look? Because I know there's a tremendous amount of curiosity and the whole cycle of the spoken word to the written word to the spoken word. I know that the the archive has, for instance, early recordings of, of Allen Ginsberg sort of working out how his great poem, you know, and that just sounds so amazing. And how do you access stuff like that? What's an easy way or a, a good way to sort of uh, dive in? Well, I would say the easiest way is to first come talk to me. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm more than, uh, more than happy to talk to absolutely anybody I can about poetry <laughs> all of the time. <laughs> Um, the special collections and uh, the archive for new poetry, it's open for everybody. Um, we're a public institution and we take that very seriously. And so you don't have to be a student, you don't have to be a faculty member um, to come in and use the archive. And you don't have to be a student or faculty to um, come and talk to me because what's important to me is that everybody loves this stuff as much as I do. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm gonna really push that on people as much as I can. <laughs> Um, one of the other ways that you can kind of uh, dip your toe into this is through some of our digital collections. Um, and these are freely available, uh, you know, if, as long as you have an internet connection, you can get to it. Um, one of our um, larger audio collections, it's the Paul Blackburn Audio Collection. And again, this is the 1960s when the St. Mark's Poetry Project was just beginning. And the tape recorder was a brand new thing in everybody's lives. And he went around to every single reading that he went to in New York City in the 1960s and recorded it. Um, and he also went to poetry festivals and recorded it. And he sent letters to his friends and received letters back um, in audio formats. And we have those recordings. And a couple of years ago, we digitized the recordings. And for those that we had the copyright permissions to, we put up online to be to make freely available um, to everybody, which is really exciting. I think it's important too to remember that um, David Anton and Jerry Rothenberg both taught at UCSD and David Anton, I don't know if you call him a poet or not, but he was an orator of some kind, <laughs> you know, so language was really important to both of those guys. So, and I'm sure there are others that I didn't know, but I did know um, David and, and, and Jerry. And I think that is probably part of why the poetry uh, uh, depart or poetry um, archives are so good. Yeah, I mean, David was in the Viz Arts Department, and I believe Jerry Rothenberg was in literature, and they were a sort of beautiful crossover. And there were other extraordinary people in literature. Uh, Fanny Howe uh, taught at UCSD. Ray Armantrout uh, has, taught there, uh, has taught there for years and still uh, makes appearances and readings. Um, and so there's a real uh, resource and background in poetry at UCSD. Mary, getting back to Ian Finlay, 
I wondered if you could uh, talk about where you find it is, is such a sort of contrast architecturally, because uh, uh, what used to be called Third College and is now Marshall College is basically a, a series of low, inexpensive, to put it charitably, stucco buildings. And uh, it's a very temporary kind of situation in the span of architecture. And clearly with the redevelopment of the campus, it's going to change eventually. Uh, and so what is important about the site? Uh, what are the contrasts between uh, the work itself and, and the architecture that surrounds it? And what is important in the future if the, if the work is ever moved? Because, um, and I'll digress just for a minute, um, uh, the, the, the piece is made of, uh, of, lime, of what's sort of called Scottish limestone. It's gitting. Right, and it was carved by uh, this colleague of Ian's, uh, Nicholas Sloan, and his his uh, his colleagues were really important in the fabrication of his work. Um, but it's this very classical material, and yet in the whole you know scheme of the Stewart collection, it was probably the easiest thing to ever install. We just got them delivered and plopped them down, and and there they have sat for you know something like thirty years. Um, but maybe you could just talk about the the site, the future of the site, the possible futures of the site, and and all of that. Well, one of the things I mean is that it's it, it's a, it connects with the ocean visually, and I think that that and of course, as I said before, you have these horizons of the playing field, which uh, we understand at least at the moment. <clears throat> Is, is destined to be in the long-range plans of the university. To, could, it will continue to be a playing field. But, um, you know, that can all change. The university is building so many buildings. But they have to maintain some outdoor areas, open areas for play, you know, for tennis and frisbee and those kind of things. So hopefully um, the... Uh, it, it, we planted those trees around, um, pine trees just around it, so it would be, feel kind of sheltered, not too sheltered, but a little bit sheltered. And you clearly, you're, the way to sit on them is, or, or view them is from behind and with that whole view of the field and the trees. And it sort of takes you beyond the university in a very poetic way by going out and beyond. And I think that's um, important. Now, you know, the buildings around, as you say, are minimal. So that's a contrast with all things classical in a way. They sort of sit there contemplating themselves. And as you find students sitting on them, you know, once some students said to me, well, can we just sit on them? I was trying to talk about it a little bit. And they said, can we just sit on them and drink beer? And I said, sure, and you might think about undulating while you're doing that. <laughs> so the connecting it to the language and to and to you know what's going on, the whole scene is 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 part of the work. It's not just the stones. It's really a part of the work that is um we hope will be maintained for you know as long as <laughs> Stuart Collection is around, which we hope is forever, whatever that is. Let me ask you this uh, to both of you. Um, UCSD is a, is a place uh, that's really academically 
uh, sort of dominated by the sciences and, and, uh, and engineering. And uh, how do you talk about uh, art uh, and how is art perceived and, and uh, how does art sort of uh, find its way into uh, the world of uh, someone, say, in the social sciences, an economist, which the economics department is, surrounds the area there, or a scientist or an engineer, maybe start with uh, Nina uh, to talk about that. You know, I think there's a lot of similarities um, between sciences and humanities and arts, uh, more so than people give credit to. And in a lot of ways, and understandably, there are these divides on campus um, in terms of, you know, what major you are, what college you're in, kind of these things. But I, I really believe that uh, the arts and poetry is for everybody. Um, and there's something that Finley said that I, I do love a lot. Um, he said he wanted his works to be simple on top, but full of hidden life. Um, and I think that is really a beautiful way to think about all of the work that is going on at the university. Um, you know, if you think about the work being done at Scripps, you know, looking out over this beautiful ocean, but think about all of the life underneath it. And if you think about geology, all of the life that's hidden in these rocks. <laughs> and I think that's, that's true of, um, you know, all of the sciences, engineering and mathematics and everything like that. Um, and I think more than anything, I think people need poetry um, because it puts humanity back into these problems. And I think one of the things that's happening right now in poetry is uh, there's been a turn, a turn towards looking at um, eco-poetics. And there's a number of different ways to think about eco-poetics, but one of them is thinking about how humans interact with the environment. So you might say that it's environmental poetry, um, but it's, it's less about the pastoral, it's less about you know, the sublime beauty of nature on its own, and it's more about how people interact with it. Um, what is our role in nature? Um, what have we done to nature? What has nature done to us? Um, and I think that's central is really the fact that there is humanity at the very core of everything that we do. And I think poetry is a really wonderful way to kind of step back and remember that. Oh, that's great. I love the fact that one of the engineers at the Jacobs School of Engineering wrote a poem that he was quite proud of about the Dehosa house. You know, so he gave us this poem and we have put it in the house, actually, in a beautiful frame. And uh, just the fact that engineers are inspired to write poetry means really backs up what you're saying. And I think a lot of people at UCSD, a lot of, you know, non-art people um, encountering these works every day on the campus has got to budge something in their imagination or, you know, uh, move them in some way. Sometimes, I suppose, negatively. I mean, but that's good, too, because then you have to think about why you don't like something. And I always say it's not really about what you like, whether you like it or not. It's a question of how you respond and why. We're not trying to decorate the campus in a cosmetic way. Um, we're trying to provide experiences for people to engage or not. If they just want to keep on walking, that's fine. But we have these 
sort of treasures throughout the campus that can be encountered and thought about deeply if you want to or experienced in different ways. And I think over time, you know, students are there for four years. Over the four years, you know, they'll have, you know, different experiences. And we, you know, hopefully we're making uh, bold images that are memorable or maybe not bold, but memorable images. Like whatever you think of the Bob Irwin fence, it is a memorable experience to walk through it. And the house, you know, and the bear and the Finley rocks, you know, they just become a part of your daily experience. So as a student and, you know, as people, as faculty or anybody else, too. But um, I, I love that, that it kicks the campus into kind of another level um, to have these works around. Yeah, Kiki Smith uh, said uh, that uh, we need more and more and more stuff uh, around us that is inexplicable, yeah. uh, that we just don't uh, get a perfect read on. And I think actually a lot of scientists are very comfortable with that. Uh, scientists deal with the inexplicable uh, or things that are not fully understood all the time. And I think we found even at other places like UC San Francisco, which is a complete life science uh, institution, uh, that scientists are actually quite comfortable um, with art uh, in many ways. And uh, that's been a sort of a wonderful thing to, to see, that it's not just something that, you know, conveys uh, ideas to, to the uh, sort of inside baseball, you know, to, to the uh, initiated, but uh, it's wide open uh, for possibilities and, uh, and for different interpretations. Imaginations are important to everybody, and I think spurring imaginations is what scientists think about. You know, they try to think about the inexplicable, as you said, or the impossible, or what ifs, the what ifs, the what ifs. Mary, I think that's such a, a great point about the, the what ifs, and yeah. it's, it's more about the experience than having one meeting or, you know, understanding it fully. Because one's understanding can absolutely change over time and one's experience of it can change over time. And I think that's important to remember too, is that, you know, meaning isn't fixed and it can, it can change. Yeah. I think that's really, really important, uh, Nina, that uh, these things, and that's certainly been my experience, that with art generally, that uh, it may not change, especially if it's an artifact like a painting in a museum, uh, but you always change in relation to it. And so, you know, you see a Manet painting at different times over your uh, entire life, and it's always a different thing. And uh, that's a really important thing about public art because uh, the Stewart Collection, its environment changes and changes it. And uh, that's what artists do when they get into that game of of working out in the landscape and in public spaces is they subject their work to constant change in this way, even though it may play with and deal with permanence. And certainly that Ian Finlay does that too. I want to thank you both very much. It's been a sort of wide ranging uh, conversation and uh, it's been great to go back and uh, talk about these older works um, and uh, works that tend to sometimes get lost in the, uh, in the world of new construction and uh, that are still there and always will be and uh, and will always change as we go forward. So uh, Mary, thank you. And uh, Nina, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Matthew. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
welcome back, Nina and Mary. I just have a couple of things I'd like to mention uh, before we, we get into uh, some follow-up questions. And the one is that uh, for anyone who has uh, ventured out towards the, the site of the Ian Finley, uh, it's now undergoing uh, some uh, renovation. And there's new turf and there are new trees that are being uh, going to be planted there in the near future. And we're working with uh, the campus arborist. UCSD has a campus arborist, Mike Hogan, uh, who uh, will be uh, working with us uh, on that. And just related to that, a little shout out to the, the people who do maintain the grounds at UCSD. It's, uh, it's difficult work, and especially uh, they do it with minimum staffing. And during these times, there are very few people around to appreciate it. But uh, we certainly do appreciate it, and it's essential to the, the functioning of the, uh, of the university, the people at facilities management. Um, I also, in looking at this and sort of exploring the Ian Finley again, and this gives me an opportunity to sort of plug the new Stewart Collection book, uh, which uh, has within it, and actually the, the former edition had also, uh, a wonderful, quite a wonderful interview with Ian Finley done by Joan Simon, who has interviewed almost all of the artists in the Stewart Collection. And it stands out uh, so much because as a literary figure, one might expect that Ian would be very verbal and have a lot to say about his work. And uh, he has almost nothing to say. Uh, Joan Simon does this heroic job of, of, of putting out uh, these uh, eloquent questions, which uh, Ian answers in monosyllables. Uh, he basically doesn't want to talk about the work. Joan Simon completely understands that. It's evident uh, in the text that she, she gets it. And it seems really characteristic of so many artists of Ian Finlay's generation that the eloquence is really in the work. It's not in the talking about the work. And it, I think, reinforces what Nina, uh, what you were saying, uh, or quoting Ian as saying uh, about a, a space filled with doubt um, that he just doesn't want to explain, that it's something that uh, you get to figure out. Anyway, uh, here's the first question that came through. Uh, and it goes to Mary, I guess. Mary, uh, why do you think Ian Finley took your call given his reticence to others? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I just hope I had a friendly enough voice, or maybe he was feeling more open that day than usual, but I really, I have no idea. Um, you know, he, I, I told him I was working on this collection at UCSD, and that we were interested, very interested in his work, and I'd love to come talk to him. And, you know, I don't know that he turned people away necessarily when they did that. I don't know anyone else, but I haven't talked to people um, uh, who just went there and, you know, knocked on the door as I did. Well, maybe that's why, uh, because you were brave enough to do it, and, uh, and uh, not that many people were. I don't know. But we had a really lovely time. He gave me lunch of split pea soup with salmon. It was cooked by Sue, I'm sure. But anyway, we, we had a lovely time sitting around the table and talking. And then, as I said, going out and walking around. It, and then, you know, we just, I thought it was important for me, at least, to just kind of keep in touch with him. And he did keep sending these things, which I've given to the library. But, um, uh, and they were all beautiful, you know. So 
I found him to be a really interesting character. And given his reticence, it seems kind of uh, surprising that he actually uh, published a poetry magazine, uh, right, Nina? He did. It was uh, it was called Poor Old Tired Horse. Uh, <laughs> went by the acronym P O T H, um, and it's actually it's a it's a line from Robert Creeley. So it was something that he took from one of his, of his friends, you know, with Robert Creeley's blessing. Um, and the magazine, it ran from about 1961 to 1967, and it is full of all of his friends, all of the poets that he knew. So, you know, he, he was a little bit social with the poetry crowd. <laughs> he also had a press, the Wild Hawthorne Press, that, that printed these cards and other, you know, uh, sheets and whatever he wanted to have printed. And so those are, you know, some of these poems are included in them and you could, you can buy them when you go there. I think they're probably, I hope they're still producing them because they're really quite wonderful. The Wild Hawthorne Press, I love that. He had a sort of departure from quote unquote concrete poetry, I guess. Was the literature magazine, was the poetry magazine that he put out um, really about concrete poetry or, or was it broader? It was well. It started off broader, um, and then by the by the last issue, I think it's issue number twenty five, uh, that is filled with just one word poems. <laughs> so it was definitely experimental. <laughs> you kind of can see, you know, through the years, it going more and more experimental, um, and it was definitely filled with more and more concrete poetry as as time went on. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and is there is a question about why he expanded his poetry? Uh, to the landscape, um, I mean, that's sort of the, the core of everything that he did. I don't know if that's uh, answerable in a way, but uh, what do you think about that? What, what sort of took him out into the landscape? He didn't start in the landscape, and so uh, the, the whole, uh, you know, adventure outwards that way, where do you think that came from to either of you? Part of it might be this huge farm that they bought and him wanting to work in it. I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe he had it in mind before they bought this farm, but uh, man, it, it was, um, you know, an ideal place for them to turn buildings into poets and poetry and stories and, you know, ponds into more poems and stories and uh, to react to, to respond to and to think about. So I, I don't, other than that, I don't know. <laughs> you know, he didn't necessarily um, really always start on the page, too. I think he likened his concrete poetry um, and was kind of inspired by the, the toys that he was making around that same period. He was really interested in objects, too. So I think a lot of his, his landscape poetry is kind of that marriage of object and word together. There's a question about... Uh several of the works in the Stuart collection being uh, text-based, uh, and, uh, and uh, why is that? Uh, and then, and I'll just, uh, I guess, enumerate them. There's Barbara Kruger's piece in the Price Center. There's Bruce Nauman's uh, Neon Vices and Virtues. There's Jenny Holzer. Let's just talk about what the connections might be, uh, the links between Ian Finley's uh, Unda and those other works and, and why there are several of 
uh, these pieces that are based on words in one way or another? Well, <laughs> language is pretty basic in the world. And uh, we, you know, some artists have been, and we have followed some of those artists. And I like the fact that we also have Bruce and Jenny and Barbara Cougar. One piece that, that's uh, text-based, or not text-based maybe, but certainly contains uh, significant text is Read, Write, Think, Dream of John Baldessari, of course. Uh, and it's front and center at the Geisel Library. In a way, these, these words in Unda and the words in, there seems like there's maybe a relationship with the Bruce Nauman in the sense that the Bruce, the, the virtues and vices uh, are abstractions as is the idea of a wave. And, and uh, they're, although they're moral abstractions and then they, they're superimposed and so you lose them. They become uh, these visual abstractions, right? Uh, with the vices and virtues as in a way does Unda given the way it's sort of reconfigured. Uh, as you go through it, um, maybe there's something there. It's definitely about the, the movement of words together, I think, in the Nauman piece. These kind of iconic words that, you know, maybe you've been exposed to before, um, but never, never in that way. And it really, you know, they stand out in their new presentation. And there are lists of things he liked that, that, that Bruce didn't make up. I mean, he, he didn't make up the seven vices and the seven virtues. Those are historic. And we actually had to do some amount of research to find out if there was a, an official list of these of the vices and virtues. And it's thought that they were developed by um, monks in early Egyptian monasteries in order to remind the monks how to behave. I don't you know who knows if that's true or not, but that's what I think one of the students who was helping us do the research found. So... Uh, it's just, um, and language, of course, is, I mean, it's what the world is about in a way. I mean, it, you, you can think, but you have to express your thoughts in some mm -hmm. way. And, you, you, you know, orally, visually, whatever way you want. There's a question about how did, uh, how did he come to be known? Uh, and given his reticence especially, and the fact that he sort of refused to travel, uh, for most of his life, how did he uh, he gain recognition? Um, I guess the assumption being that one gains recognition by going out and getting it. Uh, but uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, the uh, the fact that he was so sought after, and he's actually he's really a national treasure in in Scotland. Um, and uh, how did that sort of evolve? Well, he you know he occasionally get into these battles over particular positions and so I think he was known as being kind of grumpy but obviously people I mean ferreted him out um, if they uh, if they read anything at all I mean several books a, a number of books cover him and his work and I think I first saw him in John Beardsley book about earthworks which was way back in the 80s or even the 70s perhaps but, um, you know, in the art world, I don't know, you can find people. <laughs> well, and the emergence of concrete poetry seems, I was so surprised, you know, that it, it sort of comes out of uh, uh, South America and uh, that, you know, I guess I don't know where it came from or, uh, or that it had a, a kind of place of origin, but it, it, 
it's interesting that it came out of a particular place and a particular culture. Yeah, and it was it was pretty international. Um, it kind of started with these groups in these certain places, and they got uh, there was a a festival of concrete poetry in Bristol in the sixties um, mm-hmm. that uh, brought all of these people together. And Finley, I believe, was a part of it. Um, so again, as curmudgeonly as he perhaps was, <laughs> he was involved. Yeah. And there's a question about him, uh, whether he uh, produced work in Gaelic or another language, obviously Latin, but uh, I don't know about any other languages. Uh, do you? I think French, maybe. Lots of references to the French Revolution. Exactly. That was a big deal for him. So I don't know if he actually spoke French, but I, I know he quotes it, um, like, Si Poussin, here Lorraine. Well, there are two French uh, artists who were, and actually, Si Poussin and here Lorraine is a. What does that mean? It's. Uh, yeah, Lorraine's poetry is different than, um, or, or, or his paintings are, uh, I guess, Ian saw them as, you know, oral as well as. Well, I think Poussin, uh, his, I mean, they both were these, uh, these uh, 17th century sort of Baroque French uh, painters, uh, but they're like all French painting, separate from the way the Baroque was, uh, was really academic, uh, the uh, French painting of that century. And, um, and, and Poussin uh, was all about the sort of trying to create this kind of stillness. And uh, Laurent had the, a lot to do with trying to uh, reproduce uh, sort of the, these natural events, this r- rustling of the leaves and stuff like that. And it's kind of evident when you explore those paintings. But obviously, you know, the average person walking up to that is not going to know that. It's just going to be a kind of a mystery that you put away. And if you want to find out, you're going to find out. Uh, and it has a beauty just in and of itself, kind of like Unda. You know, it has this uh, mechanism that you can, uh, leads you in uh, and uh, doesn't necessarily... Uh, necessitate being uh, explained or anything like that. Uh, Nina, there there was a time when he sort of uh, decided he was going to, he was done with concrete poetry. Um, Was that uh, that, uh, a very conscious uh, decision? Was that uh, because it had uh, run its course or why, do you think? Well, he says that he never gives it up. It just kind of left him. He was, he was very moved to make it during a certain amount of time, and he always said that he would love to make more if it came to him. It just wasn't at that point. Um, and again, going back to his curmudgeonliness, <laughs> uh, he mentioned that um, at a certain point it became more fashionable. Um, and he was very turned off by how fashionable it had become because he didn't like a lot of what people were doing. Um, he thought people were being just too witty. <laughs> he said the, the wit ruined it. <laughs> but he was witty sometimes. Oh, I think he's, he's very witty. I think he's very funny in a lot of his work. <laughs> Absolutely. The Geisel Library and Special Collections have just been such uh, great friends. Uh, Linda Clausen, its director, um, I just want to thank you, all of you, uh, at the library and uh, you, Nina, for joining us. And, of course, thank you, Mary Beebe. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew Gregoire. Thank you, Matthew and Mary. <laughs> Nina, this has been really fun. It's, it's been great fun for me, too. <laughs> Good. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.